Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about candor. Lisa, I think we we wanted to talk about candor because we think of it as a way to lean back or (laughs) as a way to confront things or situations where we think our opinion should be heard. (laughs) Um, I'm wondering, in your mind, when are the right opportunities for candor? When do you use candor in your day to day? You know, it's a good question. I feel like I made a very intentional decision as a preteen because I, I was around a bunch of bullshitters all the time, like like mega bullshitters, like just garbage architecture of self people, men in particular in my family, but also in my community. And I made a decision to be candid as much as possible as a way to build out freedom for myself. Because it's like, if I say who I am, there's no plausible deniability about it later, Right. I've already told you. So I felt very strongly as a very young person that candor is the path to freedom. It builds as much um, space in your relationships as possible. So I started just being, I would say, probably brutally candid as a young, trying to figure out what, because there were no scripts, right, to about how to be honest with people about shit they didn't want to hear. And most of the things that I'm candid about, I think people don't want to hear. I don't think candor is very endearing. So I think there's like massive opposition to it because so many of our relationships are undergirded by big lies about who we are and what we want. So I feel like candors have always been really important to my architecture of self. And I think for you too, although I'm curious about its origins, but I think it's one place where we vibe yes. <laughs> on candor. Yeah. So, I mean, I also am a person who uses candor. I mean, I'm very outspoken and don't hesitate to share my opinion. Um, And I think for me, like, it's always, I've always been this way. And part of it maybe is that I had like enough lack of social awareness that I just didn't understand that people didn't want me to speak up. Like, I just didn't catch that at any point. So maybe it was like my parents encouraged it and like let me just say whatever I thought without punishment and if that is the case I thank them for that yeah totally (laughs) um I just didn't get hushed very much or if I did I for some reason didn't internalize it as like a negative feeling but but it's interesting because I think like now that I am older and that I (laughs) have like seen the outcomes of my candor a little bit more I I definitely like there is risk involved with sharing your opinion and more often than not people don't want to hear my opinion so i mean like i would say in a lot of cases it hasn't made me an ally and in some cases maybe you know an enemy to people yeah i mean i have been i would say pretty consistently punished for my candor and i also don't care i mean I have white privilege, so that has inoculated me from a lot of the horrific, you know, fallout from candor. I don't, because I'm white and educated, I don't feel like I have to mask my candor like a lot of other people do, whether they're holistic or whether they're neurotypical or whatever. I would say that I had hyper-awareness of the punishment as a young, and it motivated me to become more candid as a form of dispositional and spatial physical protest. So I feel like candor is like an essential quality of the way that I see myself as a political person and a material reality with other people. Um, But yeah, like, I mean, I don't think it is endearing me 
Yeah. <laughs> especially about especially about structural inequality, especially within capital, right? Like in the community, I think people are responsive in positive ways to that candor because it's doing work with and for, right? Political causes and communities and objects, but I think within capital it's not. I would say though that it has really helped weed out a bunch of people and relationships and toxic attachments. And it has spared me from a lot of the chaos of Gen X's like relation of relationship disasters. And for that, I'm totally grateful because I would just say no upfront to getting involved in stuff that I actually did not want to do. So I don't, I don't feel like my life has been wasted because I wasn't able to operationalize my own candor. And that I feel like is a gift. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like you learn who cares about you and who doesn't very quickly when you're candid, right? So like there are things that get brought up much faster and boundaries that get set, you know, yeah, I do. Um, when you just say what's on your mind. But I will say candor is actively discouraged, right? Oh, so yeah. I think the ex- expectation for most people in like the workplace or in really any kind of setting where there's a power dynamic is that you're not supposed to speak up. And there's like a lot of disincentives, you know, to prevent people from actually speaking up. So I feel like it requires some tolerance for risk. The thing is like that tolerance for risk can yield so many potential benefits. So just like living without saying what's on your mind, I can't imagine it. But it's something that I see all of the time. I all have conversations with people um, like about work or about like a relationship. I'm like, you clearly (laughs) feel this way. Like you haven't said anything. And there's like this fear that speaking up will create a conflict that's unable to be, unable to be overcome in some ways needing to be liked is like the only risk that's on the table, right? Like being liked is the only thing that you're actually risking when you choose to be candid, like there really aren't that many other risks, but obviously our culture makes us feel like there are, but it's actually okay (laughs) to piss other people off. And a lot of times it's good when it's done with the right intent. Yeah. I would much rather be free than liked. I, I would say that my boundaries at work very much, I think are, inconvenient because I'm like the workplace is not a place for friends. They're just people that you work with. And so the forced teaming in the academy is like a real fraught thing. And I'm really honest with my colleagues. Like we're not gonna be friends. I don't know what to tell you. Like we're colleagues and I'm happy friendly and show some interest in you and what you're doing, but we're not gonna have some deep intimacy in our life because we are colleagues. And at some point I could be your boss or you could be my boss and I'm just not really interested in that, right? I'm just absolutely not interested in that as a structural affair of capital. It's not personal, right? But it is structural. And I, I, for me, that has been a very useful boundary to have. And I've seen it go, on, go so terribly for people who do not have that boundary because then they can't do candor. Right. So they inevitably hit a wall where they feel like they can't be honest with the other people because they're friends and they work together. And it's like things can't get done then. There's no space for the actual self 
if you don't create boundaries. And so I feel like candor for me is also about a kind of truth telling and about what it means to be honest about desires, but also about needs and about wants and about uh, realities, material realities. And so I think candor in this political moment is really under attack, right? Like the fake news impulse, the propaganda models of the modern media ecology function at a political level to undermine candor and then get operationalized as gaslighting, political gaslighting, right, at the structural level, but interpersonal gaslighting at the interpersonal level in ways that undermine the possibilities for candor. And then people just get stuck in these shitty relationships to capital or the state or their marriages or their labor or whatever in ways that they don't necessarily have to. And some of that is structural and they can't help it, right? Because of state violence and whatever. But some of it is very much about not saying the thing up front and not identifying with the self what is the most important and telling the truth itself about what you want. Yeah. I mean, I think part of that is like people conflate candor with like disclosure and they're like two separate things. So I feel like people think in order to be candid that they have to reveal like everything about themselves. And that's not necessarily the case. You can be a truth teller and not vomit your entire like personal history I also think people conflate candor with being mean. I think those things can like create anxiety around candor that like prevent people from actually productively saying what's on their mind um, and actively like working towards a liberation politics. Empathy is a necessary component of candor. What's your intent behind what your opinion is? I think matters tremendously so wanting to help someone and being honest with them like this is the thing that's holding you back like is a you know a productive form of candor and just being like you know you're a stupid idiot (laughs) like is just being me so i mean like there are situations or contexts around candor that matter I agree with that. But, and I think that candor helps us mind map other people so that we can do empathy. But I feel like people who don't do candor, they cannot see the interiority of other people. And so that makes candor really fraught because other people that are like, obviously, you're going to misinterpret whatever I say is conflict or slight or some sort of personal gripe. When really I'm like trying to describe an objective thing that's happening about how I feel and you're just going to internalize it by yourself because you're a pleaser. So I agree with that. And I feel like candor helps us map other people so that we can successfully be empathetic with them to build in productive ways, right? Regardless of what the limits of the intimacy is on those relationships, it's an essential component in empathy. I don't think you can do real empathy without candor, quite frankly. Yeah. I mean, like if, if, Kinder isn't present, you're not really getting a sense of who someone is. I feel like what people are doing when they avoid being candid is that they're trying to please, right? And if you're interacting with someone who's just like wants you to like them, they're never going to challenge you, right? I mean, that's that's not empathy. No, I think that's my biggest frustration about being an academic at 
at where I am in my life is I'm like, who these people see me? They're just doing anxiety all the time. They're just vomiting out anxiety. They can't see what's happening. They can't plan. It's all reaction. There's no strategy. It's not authentic. It's not empathetic. It's not knitting together community. It's not values driven. You know, there is no, I don't know, procedural fairness because they can't see things. It is the most banal arrangement um, that I've ever had in my entire life because the hierarchy looks different at this point in late capital, right? And people absolutely cannot manage it because they produce anxiety instead of candor in a way that is, you know, ethical. But on the other hand, it makes sense because the consolidation of capital and power is in the mouthpieces of people who are not producing (laughs) candor, who are vapid and producing you know, just domination instead of truth-telling. I mean, I think that the right is like pantomiming candor as a way to win over voters or like win their trust. So there's like candor as a way of seeming authentic is something that like Trump certainly used, even though like he was doing a bunch of grifting behind the scenes um he had a style that approximated candor but really it was bluster and it was dominance but it was it was a style of candor where the democrats are all hemming and hawing and mealy mouth bullshit janice face talking out of both sides of their mouths producing what they think is nuanced but then never delivering on the things yeah i mean it was certainly a different model right like you we just don't assume that anyone who's a public figure is honest, I think. Oh, yeah, um, I agree. We know that there's PR. We know that things are tested in plain, especially when it comes to politics. Like, how did this phrase test with this group we're using it? Um, so, like, th- that, there's, like, an implicit understanding that that's what's happening. And that's, like, how all of these messages get created and the fact that trump was you know a little off the cuff even though that i think was him just bullshitting yeah for sure (laughs) i would like to put him though in contrast to fetterman who obviously i fetishize because he does candor i mean you know he is a fundamentally oppositional figure he clearly is interested in breaking the norms around candor political candor but now with the stroke personal candor and people find it to be i think refreshing which is a word that comes along with candor a lot which is very interesting because that pairing of refreshing candor is about quenching a thirst which means there's a big desire for candor i think it suggests maybe that we don't have scripts for how to be candid in the world and so it's just constant constant bullshit and image management and ego management and spin and you know pleasing and anxiety management and masking and all of that to what to just be able to exist but not to be able to be free and not to be able to enjoy it. So I think that notion that candor should be paired with refreshing is very interesting because it does suggest that candor is always and already a disruptive, discursive, you know, self. I like that about it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times it's people saying what you think out loud, 
they're yeah absolving some of the risk yeah. you know that you personally maybe wouldn't want to take so it is refreshing if someone's saying something and you're like finally someone said it like we've all been thinking it but finally <laughs> you know i get asked that's the most common question i get is a white chick who does black power civil rights stuff and especially when he writes so much about black masculinity it's like i'm constantly being asked by white people like oh, do people yell at you? And I'm just like, yeah, sometimes. On the whole, you know, I think my job as a white race scholar is to say the things, right? To take the pain out of it for other people who want to say them with or after me or whatever. And there's value in that because I think that candor is an antidote to violence, right? I think one of the, the, you know, the backlash cycle that we're in right now, the white lash cycle that we're in right now is a fundamental response to the truth telling and candor about the police murders of all of these unarmed black Americans in the last like 10 fucking years. And that is, that's necessary truth telling, but the psyops and propaganda about crime or the border or the migrant caravans or critical race theory or trans kids in school, all of that shit is being, is operationalized violence that's meant to undercut the candor of structural violence against non-normative people, which is why, for, you know, drag queen happy hour is so important. It's why, you know, having full spectrum healthcare for children is important. It's why we should not be spending more money on tooling up the cops to repress non-normative people. It's why we shouldn't have cops in schools, right? But that's the political moment that we're in. It's weird that like certain orientations get read as candor. So like dressing in drag is considered a form of candor, but it's like that is an expression that just because it's like maybe non-normative, it gets read in that way. So it's interesting like how certain modes of expression get read as candor and also like create a backlash cycle. Yeah. I just think that there's a sensibility about what it means to take responsibility for the self in public. That's what drag brunch or like drag queens reading books in libraries is really about disrupting violence. And it's about what it means to be comfortable with non-normative, right? Self-expression. And this is an this is a moment that's fundamentally anti self expression. It's anti choosing all of the things about the body if you are not white and hetero male. So, I think that nonconformism as a self practice is a candid discourse that's fundamentally disruptive to the current arrangement of power. And it's super important for people to see that too, right? I mean, it's I think important for people to feel comfortable expressing themselves and i know like the right is like well it's a distraction why are we worried about trans kids when the price of gas is so hot you know but it's like people fundamentally they have to live in their bodies they have to feel okay yeah you know there's a mental health crisis that is important it's interesting because i feel like this conversation about candor lends itself to having a conversation about safety and safe spaces like certainly in higher ed that's a question and you know, my academic circle broadly construed is like, now I need to put trigger warnings on everything. You know, like I can't show videos of the Holocaust or I can't show like, obviously the Holocaust is massive genocide. You should assume that a class on the, the Holocaust would have a bunch of violent stuff you're going to see that was really, you know, that historically happened. And I do think the question of whose safety and where is where are safe spaces 
is very interesting. I have a colleague who went to a, a new faculty orientation and the faculty members were asked to map safe spaces on their new campus. And I'm like, does that include like, I don't know, gender neutral bathrooms because there are fucking none. So can you just write a critique of where it does not seem to be safe? Because obviously that's the shit that I would do. I was like, obviously this is an opportunity for institutional critique. Is that not what the point of the exercise is? You know, because there, there's some, I, I would rather identify the gaps than like articulate what does safety on campus mean for me, right? It seems to me that my voice is most used, best used maybe, you know, to say here are places that are wildly unsafe. Could we ameliorate that? And higher ed is resistant to it, right? Whether it's like, you know, not enough mental health counselors or whether it's not. I mean, we just have ADA compliance in our bathrooms in my building in the last two years, right before COVID. And the ADA was passed in 1990. It's the same thing with like asking people to write DEI statements as part of a job interview package or an application package. I don't know. In the wise words of Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> you know, it seems like they should be like, look at all of our ADA compliance. Would you like to work here? Not how can you do an ADA better than we have in the last 30 years? It's absurd. Yeah. I mean, that's disappointing. Like I think of candor as a way to like combat institutional power. Yeah. You know? And so God forbid you ask me to fill out your survey. <laughs> Oh yeah, I fill out every every survey. There better be there better be an open answer box. It cannot be check one through ten. Like how are you feeling? Give me an open <laughs> response box. I mean, like here's the thing: like people complain all the time. Like complaining is the number one source of conversation. I feel between people, the fact that so little of it surfaces like, at the institutional level in workplaces, it's so little that actually like surfaces in actual, like there's just so much bullshit. I, I would say like people just are not honest about their opinions. And I think like that's intentional in a lot of ways. It's like a preservationist for people in power to like not genuinely want people's opinions or not ask for it. That's interesting. There's this whole vein of commentary in the civil rights movement, particularly around 62, 63 and Malcolm X and King in particular talk a lot about candor. And Malcolm has this line that he uses over and over again in lots of his speeches and public appearances where he talks about how he prefers to deal with rampant segregationists and white supremacists because at least they say how they feel. And I do think that there is that sensibility is why the right gets read as like credibly candid because they're just expressing their most base desire, which is like racial dominance. And the liberals and center are read as just spineless bitches because they don't say what they think or feel and they're super repressed. And that kind of racial self-awareness on the right and lack of awareness among the liberals and certainly some of the left, I think they're called the dirtbag left now, seems to me to be a central feature of the way that candor is understood in the modern American context. And for me, I think that it is what produces the groupthink, that the convergence between 
the militant, you know, white supremacists on the right and the unself-aware white supremacists among the liberals is where the convergence happens to produce the white supremacist state. And I think that the only way to differentiate and to radicalize the liberals to understand how and why and where they are augmenting the right is through candid confrontation, which they hate because the reason that they don't say what they think or feel is because they fundamentally do not spend any time in that kind of conversation with self or others that has any kind of consequences. So one of the reasons we don't have accountability and the complaints don't get answered and the democracy doesn't get saved is because the fucking liberals don't want to hear any complaints because they don't want to do candor. They might be the worst at it. Well, the Democrats certainly don't want to do candor because they are right of center too. Yeah. So, right. So to be candid would be <laughs> to say like, we're basically Republicans. Yes. They're in bed together. I mean, there are people doing candor in the left of the party that are being hushed, right. In order to preserve the moderate vote. I think about candor as like a confrontation to being hushed. And I think about like how women are so often hushed. I think about all the women that Trump has paid off and the ones who are willing to have spoken out. I feel like candor to me is like the most radical. When I see it, those are the people I want to vote for. Two things about that. One, I'm thinking about the castigation of Bernie as a shrew and scold, right? Which is really anti-Semitic and also belies the candor that he brings in terms of structural economic analysis to the table within and among Democrats as a democratic socialist. And two, yesterday, Amani Perry, who's like this brilliant black journalist and intellectual, she published this piece that was super critical of Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. And he let all these crypto bros swarm her account and take it over and flocked out to her as a form of disciplining her voice, which was critical of the way the alt-right is being invited into Twitter in a different way than it has been previously or certainly recently. That's fundamentally anti-Black. And that strikes me as the way that disciplinary power moves through spaces where candor is being expressed, especially by Black Americans, especially by Black women, especially in the mediascape, especially in this politically anti-Black resurgence of nationalist power, explicitly anti-Black nationalist power. And it's exactly the dynamic that you're describing. So that's bad. But it's going to it's going to come in that form, right? The capital is going to be harnessed to patrol the candor. All of the Black journalists have basically been purged from the major networks after Obama left office. There's been no national conversation about how removing the even like lightly right of center or centrist journalists is, is making more room in the ecosphere for, you know, alt-right Nazi candor. I mean, it, I, we are in a crisis, I think, of the kind of candor that is permissible in the public sphere as it shrinks and is reoriented explicitly towards right wing Nazi ideology. Yeah, I mean, now is not the time to be polite. It's I even get frustrated when I hear people working across the aisle at this point. Oh, God. It's not the time for that. It's not helping. It's a hassle takeover moment. Kumbaya is not where the thing is. It's like we should not be pleasing the oligarchs. No, absolutely not. We should not be accommodating Howard Schultz. Thank God he's not the you know Secretary of Labor 
It's also interesting, too, because you and I dabble, obviously, in the comedic spaces. And I'm thinking, too, about comedy as a reparative kind of candor. Obviously, it can be toxic, too. But I think comedy is in a real crisis moment, stand-up in particular, because of the way in which, you know, it has failed to produce a productive candor. Um, I think, obviously, SNL gets a pass from that critique, generally because it's so medium in its candor, right? It is more polite than not. But I do think that comedy is failing to rise to the moment in terms of candor and has, in terms of its brightest stars and most visible practitioners, succumbed to race baiting and anti-transphobia and just shit comedy instead of the biting acerbic political commentary that we need. I was thinking about Jon Stewart's interview with our Attorney General Leslie Rutledge and he just savaged her. And so now he is understood as a journalist for doing candor when he was always regarded as a candid comedian of the left of center. And that tells you, I think, a lot about the realignment of the media ecology in terms of whose candor is getting privileged and what kind of candor people are hungry for and need their thirst quenched for. I mean, I think part of it is like who is paying for the stand-ups, but like Amazon and Netflix. Netflix. Yeah are the primary Drivers. supporters mm-hmm. of stand-up comedy. I mean, those are... <laughs> they have a vested interest in you not saying anything political on their platforms. I mean, those comedy specials are edited with that in mind. Um, so it is interesting when things like John Stewart's interview get airtime and I think of like John Oliver sometimes having that that confrontational candor but also he does a very like here's a thing that's wrong and then here's some absurd stuff that's also a distraction right so there is very much a sense in which there's no solutions really being presented I think candor as a complaint is recognized as a safe space but not candor as action or as activism. Yeah, I agree with that. But I also think the industry perspective in comedy helps us to understand the industry perspective of politics, understand the industry perspective of media generally. I mean, the capital is arrayed at this point in such a way as to provide such a minimal expression of candor, transformative candor, that... When people ask me for, you know, expertise about social movements, I'm just like, I mean, the candor is happening almost exclusively at the local level because it can't get coverage to get out of its shitty little statewide media ecology run by local fascists who own the newspaper or, you know, Sinclair who owns the radio and TV. So, I mean, where there is transformative candor, it's not being amplified in a way to scaffold power whatsoever. And I think then for me, that makes it even more incumbent upon individuals to produce candor, even understanding that candor manages risk differently with different people in different bodies and different social locations. Like not everybody can absorb the same amount of risk to be candid. But for those who can absorb risk, it is even more incumbent upon them to produce candor 
especially about power. But the fact that no major media institution is using the word fascism seriously. There's like that Twitter account that's like the New York Times bot that pitches like... bots so amazing. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, like, are you a serious institution of journalism if you can't name the canary in the coal mine? No, but bless the journalists because I swear to God, if I hear somebody else be like, you have to support the New York Times and legacy media because they employ all these great journalists. And I'm like, what fucking planet are you... Yeah, they pay them. But they're not giving them real air. And they're drowning that air with all this crap, right? Which is why the pitch bot is so great. Because it's like, whether it's bludgeoning Paul Pelosi nearly to death at 80 years old, or questioning why GOP candidates won't stand for office, both sides have a truth problem. You know, I mean, it's just like, what? that's exactly how vapid the discourse is. So, I mean, I... It's it's great to talk about saving democracy. I'm going to talk about it all the time. We can't do it without a healthier media ecology. We can't do that without, you know, public infrastructure for anti-legacy media stuff. And how do you get the public into that project? They have to be right engaged at such a level to understand how grave the threat is and then be willing to put their money towards it. And you have to be candid with them about what the risks are and they can't hear it. So... I mean, it's, it's not great. It's, a not, it's a very difficult time to be candid, and yet we need it more than ever.